What is up, everybody? It's great to have you here tonight. Thank you for coming back after uh, snow apocalypse uh, from last Wednesday. Thank you for the other half who uh, we were able to make it this week. It's good to be back together. It's good to be back together in a beautiful day uh, as the church worshiping. Uh, I want to begin by introducing myself. Some of you uh, may have known me for a while. Some of you may have never met me. Some of you have come in the past few months and maybe have never seen me up front here before. My name is Jared Corzine. I'm one of the pastors here at Matthias Lot Church. I'm the pastor of discipleship. I came on staff six years ago and uh, became an, uh, an elder pastor uh, just a few years ago uh, to fulfill more of the, God, uh, the calling that God had for ministry on my life. And so it's grace that I get to be here. It's grace that I get to journey with Jesus with each and every one of you. Um, we're going to begin right away uh, by me telling about a trip, a trip that I took in 2007. Uh, if you've ever seen a movie where the main character leaves home and has to do some road trip or some trek or some get-out-of-town thing in order to find themselves, in order to find something that's, that's, that they're not having at home, or in order just to get away from everything, you've seen movies like this or, or read books where, where the person has to go. Uh, to find something somewhere else. I had a trip like that in 2007. Uh, some of you know, some of you don't, and, and all of you will after tonight, that uh, part of my backstory of how God has shown tremendous grace in my life is through the ways that he provided through uh, a previous marriage that fell apart, uh, through a, a marriage that um, ended because the, the woman that I was married to uh, was a Christian. She, in a lot of ways, uh, in college, she really even discipled me, probably in, in, in some unhealthy ways. But nevertheless, she knew Jesus. But, but um, in May of 2007, she uh, talked to me and told me that she had been having an affair with uh, one of our neighbors, and she was pregnant, and she was pretty sure uh, the kid wasn't mine. And so there you go. So for a couple weeks, I say it like that, like, there you go, like, that. that's it. I just dropped, like, this huge this huge thing on you, but, um, but that is what I was facing in May of 2007. For a couple of weeks, we'd, we tried to do uh, counseling, uh, tried to see what reconciliation might look like together. We both had the Holy Spirit, um, but there were choices that, uh, that made that not possible. Uh, and so what began to happen for me was a new life. And it was a life that I completely had no understanding of uh, before because I had I'd already cashed in all my chips. I'd already put all my eggs in this basket of, of being married to this woman and, and building up this life. This, this, it really, we adopted the American dream mentality. We built a house uh, right away. We had good jobs. I was working in, for another ministry. I mean, we were, we were blessed in so many ways. And all of that, uh, I should say almost all of that. I didn't lose my job at the time, but, but pretty much everything else went away uh, in one fail swoop. Um, and so... I had been talking with a friend of mine. Uh, his name was Matt Cosby. We all knew him in college. We just called him Cosby. And I think he's been trying to shake off that nickname for the past year or so. So Matt, my friend Matt, uh, he and I had been talking for a couple months about taking this trip out to Colorado. Now, my friend Matt is not your average guy who wants to go to Colorado. This guy is like a modern-day Jack Hanna, Steve Irwin, crocodile hunter, uh, I mean, just wilderness is what this guy breathed. I mean, literally now he's a field scientist for the Army Corps of Engineers. How many of you in college ever had a friend that would get up extra early on a Saturday morning to go bird watching? 
That was my friend Matt. Uh, he could he could t- he could he could like tell plants from you know from yards away what they were. He, he was long story short, he was the perfect guy to take with you if you're going to spend a couple weeks trekking through Colorado the hard way, right? So we uh, so we I remember he came over one night. Uh, more than half my stuff in my house was gone at this point. And I remember we didn't have a kitchen. I didn't even have a kitchen table anymore. We just laid out a bunch of maps all over the, the kitchen floor and made a list of where we, where we thought we would try to go and what we thought we needed to bring. Um, and so we, uh, we took off. And we, we got into, into my, my car, my, my uh, Toyota Camry. It's not exactly the – I don't have the car now, but even at the time it wasn't the best vehicle to take, like, off-road in Colorado, but that's what we had. So – so we loaded up the car. We uh, we got provisions, uh, basically for breakfast and lunch for a couple weeks. We ate granola bars. That was our answer uh, for two out of three meals of the day. And then the uh, uh, we we had a um, a case of chili, and that was dinner for. That was it. That was all we needed. We're like, hey, if we have granola bars and we have chili, we can figure this out. Okay. Uh, we didn't bring any weapons. We didn't plan on killing anything. We just thought, hey, whatever happens, I think we'll be okay with this. Uh, we had a two-person pup tent, which if any of you guys, uh, so, some of you are starting to laugh at this because you know that those numbers that they write on the tents, like this is how many people, take that and divide it in half pretty much any time, and that's, that's what you have. So you have me who is, you know, I'm 6'5". I'm, I'm not exactly the, the smallest guy in the room, and my friend Matt is an average, you know, fairly tall kind of guy himself. And so somehow it worked out. Don't add, we'll just stop talking about that there. It was, I got over it. It was, it was painful at times, but anyway, so, so we go through and we, and we just do this trip. And, and so here's, here's our agenda. We, we had a general direction of where we wanted to enter the state. That was, that was plan one. Let's just get to this place and we'll see what happens from there. And we had a, a plan of, Hey, we're going to, we're going to be here. We're going to camp everywhere we go. We're going to camp because we don't have the money to do anything else. So we're going to camp everywhere we go. If we like where we are, we're going to stay there longer. If we're done where we are, whether it's one night or multiple, then we'll go on to the next place. What we did for a couple of weeks was we actually charted the entire state of Colorado. We made a big C, like we entered in through the south, went all the way around the bottom and up Rocky Mountain National Forest, and then back out through Denver and all that on the way out. And uh, it, was, it was a trip that I, I needed a lot of answers from the Lord, you can imagine. Uh, my journal in that time is, is absolutely just full of questions and, and grace and, and, and striving to, to understand who he was in the midst of all this. So we get out there, and uh, we have an amazing time. Uh, and it's an amazing time because all, all the comforts of home have, and, and all of the problems of home have left. I mean, sometimes you feel good about, you know, turning your phone off for some extended period of time. That was, that was me for a few weeks. No phone, no anything. But the wilderness idea really carries us on through tonight. So we were out in the wilderness doing our thing out in Colorado. It was, it was awesome. But, but the wilderness mentality is something that's going to drive us a lot this evening. Now, what happens in the wilderness is that you start to lose hold of all those things that you take for granted back home. Uh, things you've, you've learned to live life in a certain way. You've learned to live life um, according to certain standards and certain things that you think you need. Um, but then when you get out into the wilderness for, for a decent amount of time, you recognize that life is very different out here. Uh, Christians in this room, I believe that we've entered into the wilderness together. Right now we're in the wilderness. And we're going to go there tonight. We're going to get into there. But I believe that we're going to learn that this list of things we think we need in order to make it and survive and carry on in the wilderness 
gets very, very small. Let me pray. God, we thank you for grace. I'm so thankful for your grace on my life and, and for the ways that you have uh, continued to provide for me. I, I know even through my own journey, through past hurt and, and sin, that no matter what somebody else does, I'm continually reminded that uh, I'm the worst sinner I know. And so I thank you tonight that you have uh, given me grace in Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. So turning your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, a huge book. Uh, Pastor Mark has done an amazing job, as he always does, teaching through a majority of this book as we've gotten to look at this, at this church that's struggling to be together, to ha- be on the same page, to have the same mindset, to be focused together. And they're encountering issues in the world around them where they're having to make decisions about, hey, should we, you know, things like, should we buy meat in the market if we know it's been sacrificed to idols and stuff like that? How should we act in the world around us knowing that its allegiance is elsewhere, but we are called to have an allegiance to Christ? We're going to get to go into this passage tonight. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, we're going to cover the first 13 verses tonight. But it begins with this. Paul says, for I do not want you to be unaware brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. An amazing thing, this church that is made up in a lot of ways of Gentiles, you know, some Jews and Gentiles together, but you have a lot of Gentiles here who, who haven't uh, lived the Old Testament story, but they've inherited it in God's story of redemption. So Paul says, our fathers were all under the cloud and passed through the seas, referring to Exodus 13, Exodus 14, where after these plagues that happened in Egypt, this large family of Abraham, this nation of people, hundreds of thousands of slaves have been enslaved for 400 years. And after a series of plagues, God shows that he's bigger than all the so-called gods of Egypt. And then eventually the Egyptians, uh, the Pharaoh in Egypt lets the Israelites go. So they leave, but then they get pursued. And at the heel of, of, uh, of the Israelite group, all of a sudden they see that Pharaoh and his armies are, are coming down fast, and, but they run into the Red Sea. So then you have a decision to make. Okay, so do we try to turn back and outrun them, like go back to Egypt and lock the gate door? Maybe they can't get back in, or, or do we just go forward with this? Because if we go into the Red Sea, it's certainly going to mean death for us. And then what happened was an amazing miracle where God told Moses to hold up his staff and part the sea, and he did it. An amazing thing. So they go through the sea, and Paul says that they pass through the sea, they were under the cloud, referring to times where, in Exodus, where it says that they were guided by a pillar of fire and smoke by night and a cloud by day. So they were always led and provided for uh, when they didn't know where they were going, and they also were pr- uh, protected and provided for when it was tough overhead. He continues on, Paul does, in verse 2, he says, And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Uh, now, this is crazy. All were baptized into Moses. Now, what is baptism? I mean, this is what we have to come back and just think about. Baptism, for the Christian, is the passing from death to life. The recognition that the way that things were, I thought there was life in that. I thought that that was true. I thought that that was real, that that was was where life was. But then I recognized that all of a sudden when I met Jesus, I recognized that life became very, very different that even the definition of life got much bigger. And in order to have life with Christ, then the only thing that's required is that you lay down your life in order to obtain it. So for the Christian, death always comes before life. And for the Israelites, this was their opportunity. 
that they could go through the Red Sea. They were baptized because they were entering into certain death in order to find life with the Lord in the wilderness beyond. He says in verse 3, and all ate the same spiritual food. In Exodus 16, 4, we begin to read about manna, <clears throat> this bread, this bread that would rain down from heaven. I mean, the Exodus story is amazing because it shows, among about a thousand other things, this, that God will stop at nothing to provide for his redemptive purposes for his people. He won't even be stopped. He will make bread rain down from heaven, okay? We think hail is pretty tough, but if you have loaves of bread coming down from heaven, you know that God is providing for you. He said they ate the same spiritual fruit, and in verse 4 he said, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. You read some verses and it makes you do a double take about ten times. Because he says, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ himself. Uh, we have to do some work. There's two places in the Exodus story where this spiritual rock shows up. In Exodus 17, verses 1 through 7, it says, And the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, why did you bring, up, bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, what shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me, okay? What am I going to do? And the Lord said to Moses, pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel for witnesses, right? Take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock and water shall come out of it and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? Such a question we ask among ourselves so much today often. Is God really in this or not? Is he with us or not? But then the story continues more. In Numbers chapter 20, this is the beginning of a 40 years journey for Israel in the wilderness. The first generation entirely almost dies off because of their sin, which we're going to read more about tonight. And then at the end of the story, the next generation on the way in, they encounter some of the same issues. This sounds familiar. It says, now there was no water for the congregation in Numbers 20, and they assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron. And the people quarreled with Moses and said, would that we had perished when our brothers perished from the Lord. Why have you brought the assembly of the Lord into this wilderness that we should die here, both we and our cattle. Don't the excuses sound the same? And why have you made us come up out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? It is no place for grain or figs or vines or pomegranates. And there's no water to drink. Water, the common issue again. Then Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly to the entrance of the tent of meeting and fell on their faces. And the glory of the Lord appeared to them. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the staff and assemble the congregation, you and Aaron your brother, Tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. So, that, so you shall bring water out of the rock for them and give drink to the congregation and their uh, cattle. Crazy problem. So, Lord, you're leading us out of slavery, but you're leading us into the wilderness. This would make sense, God, if you're leading us out of Egypt, 
but you're going to bring us straight into a super Walmart. That makes sense, okay? Because we can find just about everything there. Low prices, all right? But no, you've led us out of Egypt. You've taken us out of slavery, but you've brought us to this place. Why have you brought us to the place where you're not going to provide for us? And I'll encourage you with this. The, the wilderness, as we're going to see tonight, is always, always, always the place where the people of God enter into as an arena of the testing of their faith. It's where they work out their faith. It's where circumstances make them have to work out their faith. So Paul is saying a crazy thing here, that the rock that followed them, this rock, was Christ. That's a huge Trinitarian statement because for at least over a 1,000 years between the time when this exodus happened, 1,200 years, 1,400 years until when Paul writes this, the whole time there's just this understanding of there's a rock here, there's a rock here, you strike it here, you speak to it here, water comes out. But Paul says, no, actually that rock was one and the same. It followed them the whole time. And that rock was Christ. Uh, <laughs> excuse me? <laughs> I mean, just think about this for a second. Are you picturing a rock floating through the air for 40 years? And then when it's time to get uh, water, as if the people forget, the Lord's like, oh, yeah, you remember that rock that one time? Yeah, get some more water out of that rock. Oh, and by the way, the rock is Jesus. Oh, unbelievable. It's, this is absolutely crazy. Now, God inspires his word and speaks through his apostles to make his word true. So I believe that his word is true. And I don't know what's happening here. If Paul would have even thought in his ancient mind that this literally has to be the same rock, that it's a one-for-one ratio, or is he speaking in metaphors, I don't know. There's, but what he's saying is true one way or another, that God would stop at nothing to provide for his people. And specifically, God wouldn't stop at anything to provide for his people because his main provision would be always through his son, through his eternal word, John chapter 1 says. So the rock that followed them was Christ. And just to be on the same page, if God wanted a rock to follow his people to get water out of for 40 years, God could do it, amen? Right? I mean, this is the faith that it comes down to. I mean, it's not a faith that always makes sense in the eyes of the world or metaphysics or bank statements or any of these business plans that we can have to make our lives work out. But he's never, ever, ever defined by what we see and feel and touch and observe in front of us. He's always bigger than that. Always, always bigger than that. So the rock was Christ, which reveals something, that Jesus was with these people. Now, I would say this, that Christ, if he's with them, if if Christ is with God's people in the Old Testament through a rock, which is insane to think about, then how much more so is he with us through a few different ways? Check this out. Christ is with us through, and I've got at least three things here. There's, there's way more that you can have, but these are three big ones, the Holy Spirit. Christ is with us through the Holy Spirit. Um, as Brandon just prayed over us, that Jesus is interceding on our behalf right now. He sits at the right hand of the throne of God. When Jesus of Nazareth resurrected out of the grave, he did some crazy stuff. He walked through locked doors. I mean, his, his body seemed to be more of in, in this resurrection like like bigger than this life can handle kind of way, but, but he was never in two places at one time, which makes me believe that the Son of God is in one place at one time in his body that Jesus still sits in, which means that if Jesus says in Matthew 28 that I will be with you always to the end of the age. Oh, and by the way, he's sending those disciples, those apostles to the ends of the earth, and he will be with every one of them always to the end of the age, then something else 
has to be the agent of that. Therefore, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit that resides in the hearts of you and me, Christian, that Jesus uses to employ his presence to be with his people. It doesn't mean that you and I are walking Jesus's all around, but but we are, are carrying the presence of Christ with us through the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, you can believe in Jesus. You can have a great doctrinal formula about who Christ is, but if you don't functionally believe in these three things in this list, then I would just argue you're not enjoying the thing that you believe in enough. So Christ is with us first through the Holy Spirit. Second, Christ is with us through his word. And when I say word, I, I, mean, this, I mean this word. Not just my Bible, because he can be in yours too, but I, I believe he's in mine. Um, you know, Christ is with us through the scriptures. Uh, it's not just that something happens when we read the scriptures. It's, it's, this is the living and active testimony of how God has redeemed his people for all time. It's true. It's sure. It's the, the more I live, just the more I live my life, even taking away ministry and everything else, the more I live my life, the more I become convinced that we have to be able to trust that what we read about, that, that, that what God did in Christ since before the foundations of the world to before there's, you know, to after when there's a time where there is no end, that everything in between which the scripture speaks of is the very word of Christ himself, who is the word who became flesh, again in John chapter 1. Uh, if Christ was in a rock with his people, then Christ, the word of God, is also the means by which we have these scriptures, which tell us how faithful God has been in Christ. Lastly, Christ is with us through other believers. Now, this is probably the biggest head-scratcher. Think about this. Jesus says in one place in the Gospels, when you give a cup of cold water to somebody, I'm there. Okay? So Jesus is present in ways that people don't fully grasp in the beginning. But then also think about this. In Acts chapter 9, Acts chapter 9, major, major thing happens where... The Pharisee Saul is confronted by the risen Jesus on the road to Damascus. Saul's been persecuting Christians. And he's brought to this place where Jesus appears to him. He's struck blind completely. And Jesus, uh, as Saul is on his way to persecute some more Christians, Jesus doesn't say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting people who are following me? He says what? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? which means that when Saul persecutes Christians, that he's persecuting Jesus himself. It's not to say that those Christians are Jesus, literally, but again, this this true spirit-empowered presence of Christ, that Paul is actually persecuting Jesus by persecuting followers of Christ. So that's a negative sense of saying that Jesus is with us through other believers, through the church. But I would say, on the positive sense, we can... Celebrate the fact that the presence of Christ is all around you, Christian, through communal relationships you have. Brothers and sisters in Christ who certainly are, are not without error. Okay, we're not, we're, not the, we're not the scriptures. But if we do have the Holy Spirit inside us, then we are obligated and have the opportunity to play a role in others' lives, to bring the truth and the presence of Christ into other people's lives. Again, you can have a great, uh, mathematical statement about your sin, about what Jesus did. But if you don't believe these things, I think you're missing out on enjoying the thing that you believe in, in Christ. That he's with you no matter what, through the Holy Spirit. That he continues to reveal himself through his true and inerrant word. That he continues to bless you, uh, to, to breathe himself on you through the interactions that you have with others in the family of God. 
through Christ. Amazing stuff. Paul says in verse 5, he continues on, he says, Nevertheless, okay, this is, if this could not get more amazing, nevertheless, it wasn't enough. With most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. He's referring to times like what we read earlier or in Numbers 14 when they say that tragic question again, would it not have been better for us to go back to Egypt? Do you understand how terrible of a question that is and what that means? Would it not have been better for us to go back to slavery than to be out here and not have water? They've been granted freedom as a people for the first time. It just means they have to be in the wilderness with God himself. Uh, Here's some perspective. Anybody in here like maps? I like maps. Okay, the three of us, you may want to get a closer seat up here in front. But, okay, if you look at this, this is just some big picture perspective. The green part on the bottom in there, that's Egypt, okay? And that tall, skinny part. As you go around the stripy kind of areas, uh, on the eastern side of the Mediterranean Sea, there's, uh, there's the land of Canaan. This is the promised land. So when God said, I am going to redeem you from the house of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, he said, I'm going to give you a land... Uh, flowing with milk and honey, a promised land, and that land is Canaan. So as you go around up to the right, you see that next picture, uh, if you can, next slide. So as they would leave Egypt and they go through the Sinai area there, Canaan is actually the last word on the right on the top. That's where they want to end up. That's the place flowing with milk and honey. That's the place that has way better than water and way, way, way more tasty than manna. This is the place that they're supposed to end up. Think about this. If God was about efficiency, we, we have to un, unplug ourselves from this because we are so efficient as Americans. If God was about efficiency, then he would have them go straight from Egypt along the sea up to Canaan. Uh, a journey that takes maybe a couple weeks, even with a few hundred thousand people, that's maybe only a few weeks to go from Egypt up to Canaan. But what did he ask them to do? He asked them, to go down to the bottom of the Sinai Peninsula there in Brown, way, way, way down to Sinai, the place where he revealed himself to Moses in, in, at first. So God, it seems to not be interested in efficiency as much as he's interested in them getting away from Egypt and getting into the wilderness long enough to learn how to not live like Egyptians, to get away from uh, the identity of slavery, to get away from relying on other so-called gods and taskmasters and kings and such, he's drawing them, wooing them out into this hard place in order to grow their faith in who he is and what he can do for them, as if doing more than redeeming them from Egypt wasn't enough. But we think the wilderness is the problem in our lives. Put yourself in a circumstance right now. I mean, we're tempted so often to think that the circumstances itself, that's the problem. And we're really good fixers in our part of the world. So what we, what we need to do is you need to fix that problem and then get it better. It, when actually it seems like the wilderness itself is what the Lord intends for his people. Is that a life of having to navigate tough terrain, a life of having to make decisions in order to, to choose faithfulness or not, that that's what he intends for his people. Um, if the people of Israel are baptized through going through the Red Sea, then they go straight to the wilderness we could say that baptism always comes right before the wilderness. That the wilderness always comes right after baptism. And that's not a very popular message either because you want to be baptized, cross from death into life, and then be baptized and maybe not go to a super Walmart, but you want to go like somewhere better, you know? Where, where would be somewhere better? 
Way better than a super Walmart. What, what would that be? <laughs> There's like five people in unison. Bass Pro. Okay, that's one. We'll just, we'll just say on that. That's, that's, I don't know that I could have had a, as many. You guys are equally yoked in your marriage. This is good. This is good. Um, but we don't like to think that we have to go through the wilderness to get to the promised land. Um, imagine this. I was, a, I was a high hurdler in high school for a couple of years. Anybody else in here run hurdles in track and field or you've seen it on TV? Uh, maybe you haven't. It's too much to explain, so just, just take, take my word for it. Uh, in the high hurdles, what you do is you, you line up in the starting blocks in this one straight race down the side of the track in which every few steps you are going with the lead leg. I can't stretch like I used to, so I can't, I can't really show you as much as I would love to right now, but you lead over with one leg, and then you have your second leg, your trail leg, that comes back over. So you're not, you're not actually jumping over hurdles. You're just you're, you're running a bigger stride over them. And I did this for two years. At the end of my junior year, uh, district championship meet, I, uh, the, the gun goes off, and that's honestly the last thing I remember for a couple days because what happened is the gun goes off, I take off, and right, whatever my cadence was, right at about five strides later, I go over to the first hurdle. This is district championship meet. Everybody's around looking, all that kind of stuff. And, uh, and apparently what I was told happened is as I'm leading with my lead leg, it clipped the hurdle, but it didn't clear it. Um, and then as I followed with my trail leg, I have no idea even what I was thinking in the moment because as I went to follow with my trail leg, both my lead leg and my trail leg get stuck on this side of the, of the hurdle, which means that going over like this is, is me and what broke my fall was my forehead. And yeah, exactly, yes, that's what I'm saying. And so I go down, bam, lights out. I wake up and I'm on the way home from a hospital in Louisiana, Missouri. And for whatever reason, I don't even know why, I don't even think they asked me this, but I kept repeating over and over and over, George W. Bush is the President of the United States. George W. Bush is the President of the United States. And I have, I have no idea uh, why that was my answer to say, hey, it's okay. I'm not sure. But here's, here's what happened. The next year, my senior year, I, um, I line up in the blocks. First day of track practice, I line up in the blocks to work on my stride to pick it back up again. Again, that, that happened at the very last meet at the end of the school year before. So I had no other track experience before stepping out there again a year later. So I step out there. I get into the blocks. Again, I could show you, but my, I'm not quite what I used to be. So, I mean, you get into the blocks, you plant your hands, you look up, practice whistle goes off, and I take off. Like five steps later, and I'm running, and I see it, and all of a sudden, last second, I bail. And I just, I just do this, like, rocky jog, and I go back, and I'm like, all right. I got this. It's good. Let's do it again. Let's do it again. Okay, so we line up, whistle goes off, start going again. I see it, and then I just, I just do this thing again. I, I never ran a high hurdle in my life after that. It's not that bad. I was, I was okay at other stuff. It's not. <laughs> um, but this is what happens when you take off and you encounter friction, you encounter opposition, you encounter things that are a little more difficult to navigate than what you thought it would be. Um, that response can build so easily. Where instead of just running through it and saying, okay, we're going to do this, right? We, we get to the obstacle and we, we get a little jumpy and we just decide to, to go back. Maybe we try it again for a while and then eventually think about this. 
Think about if we got tired of trying hard and failing it, and then we just turned the starting blocks to run straight to the stands. That's what we do. Because then I can just take off and I can run five steps up to the stands, and then I can sit there and watch the race happen. Because this is way easier than falling over a hurdle again and busting my head, all right? Um, We think the wilderness is the problem, but my friends, baptism in the Christian life means that you take off from the starting blocks and five steps later you are smack dab in the trees the wilderness gets full frontal very quick not just for the Israelites in uh, Egypt Jesus in the gospels in Matthew 4 he's baptized by John the Baptist in the wilderness very next thing to happen he's led by the Holy Spirit up into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil now I think Jesus's temptation and ours have very very different meanings okay I'm not putting our temptation on that level Praise God that he uh, passed his temptation. But we have to get our picture straight here on, on what this life is all about. Uh, we're not in Egypt anymore, praise God. Amen? So we're, we're not under the slavery that we once were. We're not under the, domin- the dominion of sin that we've existed for uh, since the very beginning of our lives. But we're not yet to the promised land. Anybody who tells you that you're in the promised land is doing the eventual promised land Uh, uh, not justice at all. So that means that you and I here in this life are left in this wilderness, in this dangerous place, in this place where we have to learn how to rely on God, where we have to learn how to rely on God uh, with each other. Paul continues on to make his case. He said the thing that he's going to give... some case studies here. In verse 6, he says, now these things took place as examples for us. Literally, uh, the word in the Greek is, is tupas. It's where we eventually get our word type from. These things were types for us. Not every example or type is a good one, by the way. So that we might not desire evil as they did. Literally, crave evil as they did. We have to learn how to crave new things, and the wilderness gives us opportunities to stop craving what we left behind in Egypt. In verse 7, he says, Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Now you have to pause right there. If, if anybody else reads this and is convicted, because you're thinking, well, I've, I've sat down. I've eaten before. I drink from time to time. Rise up to play. What's wrong with that? Well, Paul's quoting, literally quoting uh, part of Exodus 32 where the golden calf incident happens. People of God are worried that, um, that the Lord won't be there for them because Moses is up on the mountain too long talking to God. So they make Aaron, Moses' brother, the priest, make a golden calf, and they begin to worship it. And they worship it by, by, by offering sacrifices, animal sacrifices, grain sacrifices to it. And then it says, as Moses came down, it says literally uh, this, that the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. They're celebrating Uh, the wrong sacrifice. Um, Paul, I think, says this here because these Corinthians are wrestling. uh, They're they're not wrestling with trying to figure out, do we need to offer sacrifices to pagan gods? Paul probably is thinking, we should have covered that by now. You should be good on that. You don't need to go take uh, sacrifices and offer them to the other gods of Corinth. But their struggle is, do we celebrate the sacrifice? uh, Do we celebrate the wrong sacrifices to the other gods or not? Now, it's one thing to say you're offering a wrong sacrifice. It's a totally different thing to say, well, are you going along with how the world around you 
is offering celebration to the wrong sacrifice, to something that claims that it provided redemption and does what God does but can't. Um, He continues. He says in verse 8, he says, um, we must not indulge in sexual immorality if some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. In Numbers 25, the Israelites, literally in the ESV, it says they whore themselves with the daughters of Moab. Now, I know that being in the wilderness, sometimes you get antsy, okay? They're out there for a while, and I guess they see the daughters of Moab, and something seems pretty tempting there. But sadly, what happens is they begin to to have sex with and, and intermingle themselves with these daughters of this other, uh, this other country, this other nation, and what happens immediately afterwards, like clockwork, is they begin to worship the other gods. Uh, amazing, amazing, amazing how much our sexuality is tied to what we worship. Um, in the wilderness, I, I believe that we must fight against a few things. Um, I, I actually could have said number one in the first uh, instance, it's idolatry. We have to fight against idolatry. Number two, in the wilderness, we must fight against sexual indulgence. I put it in parentheses because in the wilderness, you pretty much have to wean yourself off of everything anyway. You know, I'm out in Colorado, and even though, uh, you know, I may crave a Twinkie, it's not going to come off a tree, okay? Those just don't grow in Colorado. Um, But moreover, we have to fight against sexual indulgence. And indulgence is such a great word for it because when you have boundaries on your sexuality, God-given boundaries, you are put to the test. Do I believe that God's boundaries actually provide freedom? Or do I believe that when the world says that all the boundaries should come down, that that's actually how true freedom is? No, we have to fight together um, against sexual indulgence. It's tied to who we, it's tied, it's tied to what we worship. It messes with our heart. If you think you're the exception in this room, I promise you that sexual immorality will cause you to fall. And you'll stumble for a while. You won't stumble until somebody finds you out, and then you've fallen. But if you don't get caught, you will completely fall apart. Uh, I'm so blessed that this church has always been a church that has prided itself on welcoming in the sinner because guess what? We are all sinners. And again, I believe it. I am the worst sinner I know. You may not get that because you may know the worst sinner that you know, but I believe I am the worst sinner I know. We have to help one another in this. We must fight sexual indulgence. He says in verse 9, we must not put Christ to the test. As some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. Insane statement. So he's saying that these Israelites, were, that they were actually putting Christ, right? The spiritual rock that was following them. That they were putting Christ to the test. What happens in Numbers uh, 21 is, is the people are grumbling again. They're fighting against the Lord. They're, not prom- they're, 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 they're trying to rebel against Moses and Aaron. They're believing that he is not who he says he is. And they say that statement again. They grumble and say, we need to go back to Egypt. And then the Lord sends down fiery serpents to bite them. And I'm not a snake person, okay? Uh, The Lord sends down fiery serpents to bite them, but then he tells Moses, lift up a fiery serpent on a staff. And all who look on that serpent, uh, if they look upon it, it's their sign of repentance that they'll live. And then oddly enough, in John chapter 3, Jesus himself says, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness... So when the Son of Man is lifted up, all who look on him will be saved. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son. I mean, it puts a little more context into how, who this salvation is being offered to, right? 
that you and I weren't people just coming to church, kind of doing the God thing. And then Jesus died and said, I'm going to clean this up a little bit. No, this is, this is us putting Christ to the test. We were all testers. We were all, all, we were all forbidding ourselves to believe that he would do what he said he would do. That he can do what he says he can do. These Israelites were putting Christ to the test. And we must, again, number three, in the wilderness, fight against testing Jesus. We need to trust him rather than test him. I mean, the, the, the antithesis of, of testing is accepting the gift and trusting that it is enough. So instead of forsaking what God has provided, we have an opportunity. We have to fight together. We have to fight against testing Jesus and help one another trust him more. Paul continues on again. It's like he doesn't have enough examples. I mean, it's like he, he, they're probably at this point saying, Paul, stop, stop. We get it. We get it. Okay. We get it. Stop it. And then he just keeps saying, he's like, no, you got to hear it because this is you and this is, this is us. He says in verse 10, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer, capital D. That is uh, some scary stuff. Now, it's scary because in Exodus 12, when the Passover happens, uh, and, and the Israelites that were all called to be faithful and recognize that they're faithful to the Lord, they were called to paint blood, uh, pure, uh, uh, spotless, blameless blood of a lamb on their doorpost. And the, 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 what scripture says is God sent a destroyer through to smite down the firstborn of Egypt. Now, probably an angel of the Lord or something like that, but it was something that was executing God's will uh, for the sake of his judgment. And Paul says, don't grumble as some of them were because uh, like happened in Numbers 14, uh, many of them were destroyed by the destroyer. That same destroyer in Egypt was the same thing that, that smoked them down in the wilderness because they revealed that they're no different than the Egyptians themselves. Then he says in verse 11, now these things happen to them as an example. As an example. This example word comes up the second time tonight. All of us are coming from different places in life. We have received a variety of examples in our life. You've received examples of what it means to work hard or not work hard. You received examples on what it looks like to parent, what it looks like to be married or not be married. You've received examples uh, maybe from close friends and loved ones or from culture as a whole on, on what the ideal fill-in-the-blank looks like. Uh, not every example is a good example, though. Amen? Praise God that some of us have fantastic examples of faithfulness in our lives. But we all, if, if we all fall short of the glory of God, and if Paul says, again, uh, paraphrasing what he says to Timothy, that I am the worst sinner I know, then that means that we also give some pretty bad examples sometimes too, all of us. So what do we do with our sinful examples? I think we know what we want to do with our good examples. We want to go run and tell it on the mountain. We want to make banners and t-shirts and post it on Facebook and Instagram and, and just everything we do like that, that's, that clearly displays God's glory. We want, we want to testify to that. I want to use that in other people's lives. That's, that's awesome, and we should. But what do we do with our sinful examples? Uh, I believe this, that God uses our sin redemptively. Because you never know what to do with your sin sometimes. It's like, well, I know Jesus paid for it, so I'm going to keep working on it. But is there, this is even a weird way to say it, is there hope for your sin? 
Number one, God uses our sin redemptively to give us a true sense of taste. How many of you are self-proclaimed foodies in the room? You like to go to restaurants? You like to, yeah, we've got a few in here. Uh, Keith Kozlowski is a foodie. Wherever he is, everywhere we go, he tries to order open-faced this or that, or, you know, he's always been to a restaurant that he, he's literally probably my next. Like, I will ask Keith about a food joint before I get online and Google it. I'll trust him more than Yelp because he seems to know what he's talking about. Uh, we do this thing, whether it's uh, with food or with, with uh, say, with coffee, with um, different things that we take in. Nobody starts from from nothing and automatically has an appreciation for the best thing right away. Nobody says, oh, yeah, uh, I have no idea what this thing tastes like, but then I try the best one and, I mean, so many things even take an acquired taste to, to be able to appreciate. All of us have tasted bad things. Your sin reveals that. Your track record reveals some faithfulness if you're a Christian, but it also certainly reveals uh, some, some bad-tasting things, bad-tasting things you've done, bad-tasting things you've thought, bad-tasting things that you've covered up, bad-tasting things that you've fought very hard to keep hidden. I believe if we embrace the redemption of Jesus Christ fully, we should never forget who we were. And that's painful. Because it's easier to say, hey, you know what? I'm in the wilderness, but uh, I know everybody else was talking about us coming from Egypt, but I was born here. It was always like this for me. Man, I just, like, I, I swung in the trees like Tarzan. I like to, you know, grow bananas. I just, the wilderness is, is this is where I belong. I've always belonged here. No, the story of redemption all throughout the Old Testament into the New is that you were once slaves, but God being rich in mercy. So we all taste uh, bad things that we need help learning uh, taste bad. Psalm 34.8 says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. My wife and I were reading Psalm 2 last night, and it's such a blessing to have it's such a blessing to have a spouse that you can journey with Jesus with. Uh, and Psalm 2 ends with this same phrase, blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. There is no refuge from Jesus, only in Christ. Because he has all authority in heaven and on earth. There's no escaping him. There's no refuge in anything else. There's no taste. There's no, nothing worth tasting in anything else. Taste and see that the Lord is good. You have an opportunity with Christians, with brothers and sisters in your life at times to reach out and smack that piece of junk that's in their hand that they're about ready to eat. Why are you eating that? We do that all the time. One of my dogs, not one of my dogs, common mistake in our house. One of our boys, uh, yeah, one of our boys, we have two boys, Reed is four and Blaine is almost two. Um, about two months ago, Blaine ate a dog treat. <laughs> so I came home and Sarah's like, uh, got to tell you something. Your son ate a dog treat today. And I'm like, what? And I'm looking at him like, what happened? She's like, he ate it. <laughs> and then she gave the caveat. She said, well, at least it's all natural. <laughs> like that's, no, you have an opportunity to walk up to your brother and sister and say, why are you about to eat that dog food? Why are you about to look at that? 
Why are you talking like that? That tastes bad. Man. We have an opportunity more than that to say, man, mm, world around us, you think that my tastefulness is because of something that you understand? Let me tell you something. I've tasted and I've seen and I've seen again today that the Lord is good. Number two, God uses our sin redemptively to help others learn from our mistakes. Now, I believe so passionately in this. And the reason being is because I was converted at a very, very young age. Which means what? Which means that my worst immoral decisions in my entire life, for the most part, have been made while I've been a Christian. It's different if you're saved in the wilderness, but I was, I was saved way back in Egypt, right? I was, I, was, I was out there, and then, but then I had to learn taste and learn, grow a palate and learn how to live in faithfulness. God uses our sin redemptively to help others learn from our mistakes. Proverbs 1 through 9, the first nine chapters of Proverbs, is basically a fatherly instruction to his children. And he goes into things. Um, talking about the power of greed, talking about the power of lust. My sons, give, give ear to my wisdom. Don't, don't, don't listen to that woman of folly, that, that woman who's beckoning you to come in, to seduce you, to lure her, because that only leads in death. He gets so specific in those nine chapters that I believe wholeheartedly that he's speaking from firsthand experience. And he's being a good father. My son, don't go there. I know where it goes. That's the way you can use a bad example redemptively. Uh, I have nothing to hide in this. Do not go there. Do we believe this in Romans 8, 28? Do we believe this? And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for the good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Do you believe that your failures and your wretched sin that God is using that for redemptive purposes, that he desires to use that for redemptive purposes in other people's lives? That he's given you a story? And yeah, it's, it's a struggle story. We all are still today, even in this right moment, uh, the best of us in the room, whoever that is, Mike Malone is struggling, right? I'm struggling. You're struggling. All things work together for the good of those who love him, which means that your sin doesn't have the last word. Which means that death doesn't have the last word. It means that, that death always leads to life, right, for the Christian. That baptism is a dying that gives way to true freedom. We truly begin to make disciples, I think, when we realize this. It's this issue right here, which is one of the most common barriers to making disciples that I encounter in the church. It's either, it's either one of two things. My story is too messy, or my story is not messy enough. Uh, but Christian, like Christ is with us through the Holy Spirit, through his word, through other believers, God has given you the Holy Spirit. God has given you his word. God has given you relationships and a story to enter into. To not be afraid, you know, when, when you recognize that all of your sins have been paid for by the spotless blood of Jesus Christ, that you're not afraid to say, yes, this is what I've done. This is who I was. This is who I struggle being now. And I'm just being real because this, th- this is how I'm trying to live in the wilderness right now. I think people get sick and tired of people in the wilderness talking like they're, like they're walking around on a well-groomed grass field. 
know, we do a lot of things to try to cover up the fact that we're in the wilderness, but it doesn't take away from the fact that this is where we are together. God has given you what you need to use your story, to use his truth, to use his word, guided by the spirit to invite others into your story and say, this is what it looked like for me to learn how to taste that the Lord is good. These are different ways that I'm seeing God use even my sin in this season of life, bring about redemptive purposes. Paul continues on in verse 11. He says, but they were written down, these things, right? All these, all these bad examples for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Time is precious. If the end of the ages has come in the middle first century AD when Paul wrote this, then that means that redemption's closer than when we first believed right now. Oh my goodness. Why are we walking around like we just have time on some credit account? The end of the ages has come. These things are written for our instruction. The ability to receive instruction is a mark of maturity for the Christian. Because, let me give you a newsflash, nobody in this room doesn't need instruction. Some of us like to live like we don't need instruction. Like we don't need to be challenged or rebuked at times, corrected. It's a mark of Christian maturity that you can receive instruction. That you can discern, that you can listen. That you ask for it, invite it. I love that about our staff. I absolutely love that about our staff and elders. Because we continually invite um, instruction from one another into our lives. The wilderness that we find ourselves in, in the wilderness, we must fight against idolatry, sexual indulgence, testing Jesus instead of trusting him and grumbling. These people were grumbling. They were brought down by their grumbling. And at, at the end of the day, do you look back at this? Do we believe that Jesus is more powerful than these things? Do you believe that Christ is more powerful than the other so-called gods that you're tempted to worship all the time? And maybe it's not gods or, or, or serpents on a pole, but it's, it's, it's the temptations to worship the idol of money, success, power. Um, do, you believe that Christ is, do you believe that Christ is more powerful than your sexual addiction? Just start there. Do you believe he's more powerful than your sexual addiction? Do you believe that Christ uh, is so powerful that even though you test him time and time again, even though you and I are testers, that he remains faithful because he has power enough to be faithful do we believe that jesus no matter how much we grumbled he is who he is that that he will provide he will be with us that he is the same yesterday today and for ever paul says in verse 12 and maybe some of you came tonight just to hear this verse therefore let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall let any one of you think he stands who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. James chapter 4, verse 6. I love it in the Gospels. Those people that think that they have earned a rightful place on the inside, we learn that they actually find themselves on the outside. And those people who are stuck outside the gate, who think that the last place that they could ever end up would be a seat at the king's table, those are the people that Jesus invites to his table. God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. Let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Paul's saying these wilderness generations, they thought, man, God has done something. God is, you know, we are his people. 
and we will handle this. We can handle this wilderness, but they couldn't. So they fell. But then he gets to one of the most famous passages that I have quoted in the midst of my battling against my sin, and you as well. In verse 13, he says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. And he will let let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Uh, here's, here's what this phrase is not saying. Next slide. God will not give you more than you can handle. That's the easy way to want to say it. That's the way that I've probably said it, trying to tell people what is being said here. Because here's the thing, a majority of the, the disciples were martyred for their faith, which means that their life couldn't handle it at some point. Uh, persecuted Christians right now around the world who will die not being able to overcome the executioner's blade. Uh, the wilderness was overwhelming. That's the point, that it was an overwhelming circumstance that would cause his people to rely on him. What is the key to this famous passage? I believe that it's found in some ways in the Exodus story uh, in Exodus 33. Moses, this is after the golden calf thing, and Moses is fed up. He wants to wash his hands of all this. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, Bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and I've also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me your ways that I may know you. You see what he still wants. That I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. You've promised to do something here, God. And he, the Lord, said, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. God's presence always provides rest. It doesn't matter what the circumstances are. The circumstances fail at some point in providing rest. God can provide rest in any circumstance. And he said to them, Moses, if your presence will not go with me, then do not bring us up from here. God, I would rather die out of here than you not be with us. Give us all the stuff of Egypt. It doesn't matter if you're not with us. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us that we are distinct? I and your people from every other people on the face of the earth. So what's the key to this passage? It's not the difference in our ability. It's not the changing of the circumstance, to be honest. Jesus said, peace I give, not like the world gives, right? The peace that Christ gives is, is peace that, that can surpass difficult circumstances, not dependent upon circumstances being made easy. Remember, we're still in the wilderness. No, the key to this passage is not in our abilities to handle it, but in this. Next slide. Christ is with us. This is it. This is all we have at the end of the day. Because money will run out. Um, People will die. Circumstances will get harder often before they get easier. And even if they get better, by the way, we are still in the wilderness. No matter how we can, we can cut down trees and cut our grass, no matter what we think, we're still in the middle of the woods until we get to the promised land. And this is what makes all the difference. Christ being with us.
Christ is with you in your success. Christ is with you in your failures. Christ is with you in your doubt. Christ is with you in your fears. I know some of you are afraid right now. Christ is with your thriving marriage, praise God. Christ is with your struggling marriage, praise God. Christ is with your failures as a husband or a wife. Christ will still be with you in the midst of divorce. Christ is with you in your singleness. Christ is with you in your parenting. Christ is with you in your failure to be a good parent at times. Christ is with you in your infertility. Christ is with you even though you had a miscarriage. Christ is with you even though you had that abortion. Christ is with you in your lack of a future plan. Christ is with you. (laughs) Praise God for this. Christ is with you when your plans are wrecked. Amen. Christ is with with you in your career, your job. Christ is also with you in your idolatry of your job. Christ is with your mistakes. Christ is with you in your hurt and pain. Christ is with you when you cause others to hurt and have pain. He never leaves you. Christ is with you in your disciple making. Christ is with you in your inability to see what God has given you to disciple others. He is still standing by your side. It's not the circumstances changing that will lead us on. It's knowing that whether it's in the form of a rock or in the spirit that rests inside us, that Jesus will never leave us or forsake us. At the end of the day, if all we have is him, then we have more than enough. Christ is with you. You just have to repent and die and submit to his name once again. That's the Christian life. The way to resurrection goes through death. The way to a life goes through baptism, going under the water in order to rise. The way to eternal life goes straight through dying to yourself every day, denying yourself, picking up your cross, and once again choosing to submit to him in whatever he wants. Tonight we partake in a meal that just in the end, just before he left this life, just before he willingly gave himself up to be crucified, He looked his disciples in the face and he said, this is my body broken for you. Take and eat. And just as he poured out a cup and he lifted up the wine, he said, this is my blood, the blood of the covenant. Take this, drink, receive. I am with you. In taking this meal for Christians tonight, this is a proclamation that you believe that no matter what happens in your life, that he will always remain faithful, that he will never leave you or forsake you, that in the best of times and in the worst of times, Christ will still be with us. And that will enable us to repent, to turn back, to be faithful, and to go his way. God, I thank you that you bless us. You've given us a gift that is bigger than we can ever fathom. Jesus, you're more than we could ever ask or think. 
is a bigger answer to any prayer that we've ever prayed. I thank you that you have been and will always be enough. I pray specifically for brothers and sisters in this room that are going through circumstances that are overwhelming, under the water, struggling for air. God, more than praying that you would provide in the circumstance, I pray that you would bring the presence of Christ close once again to help them understand that you are with them. God, I I pray for those who have entered into this room that are still in Egypt, who've never trusted in Christ. I pray that you would bring salvation into this room tonight. God, I pray for those who've never thought that they would ever deserve to be at the king's table, that they would understand that, that when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die, that all of us have a place. God, I, I pray for the power of your grace to shepherd us once again back to you.